0: Well, thank you so much for that wonderful worship and song. And it's great to see all of you here this morning at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It really is an honor uh, to be here with you today. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to look uh, really uh, mostly at chapter 1, but we're going to look at other uh, verses in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And as you're turning in your Bibles, I know that some of you are already serving vocationally in pastoral ministry, and there are others of you Uh, who are hoping to serve vocationally in ministry very soon. And you probably have already realized that pastoral ministry is much more difficult, maybe, than you thought it was going to be. And let me tell you the reason why that is. That is that the call to serve the Lord in a local church ministry is a call to minister to an assembly of God's people, not a call to manage an organization. My degree is in business, and managing an organization is a whole lot easier, actually, than ministering to people, because in managing an organization, that can be much less personal, and so there's less risk of getting hurt or even sometimes of getting disappointed, and you, and you seem to have much more control when you're managing an organization. However, when you're dealing with people, well, people sometimes, as you know, can be, can be messy. All of God's people, as wonderful as they are, are sinners. And we come to realize that dealing with people on a personal level can be one of the most challenging things of all. And now here you are in seminary, and you're learning so much about the Scripture, and what a wonderful uh, thing that is, what a wonderful president you have, and wonderful professors that you have who are teaching you the faith once for all delivered to the saints, But there may be a part of you that says, well, I'm learning a whole lot about the Bible, but how do I learn about people? Well, what I hope that you're going to be able to see today is that as all of God's Word is inspired and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that the Word of God also prepares us to deal with people. And so today, I want to take a little bit of a different take on the book of Ruth. And what I want to show you through this text are three lessons for pastoral ministry in the book of Ruth. So let's dive into the text together. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So what we find here in the first few verses of chapter 1 is we find a woman who has been left helpless. Imagine how difficult things were for her. We see a glimpse of that in the very beginning where it says, in the time that the judges ruled, and you remember what the book of Judges tell us about the state of Israel. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was a difficult time to live in anyway. Then we also see that she has to deal with a famine. That would be incredibly difficult to deal with. And as a result, she would have to relocate from her home in Bethlehem now to Moab. The Scripture tells us that she was there 10 years away from home. And if that wasn't difficult enough, her husband died. Now, none of us knew Elimelech, but all indications are he's a wonderful man. His name means, my God is king. So you would assume Elimelech was a wonderful man. And now this woman, away from home, having escaped from a famine, living in a very difficult period of time, is widowed. And if that weren't bad enough both of her sons, have died. Can you imagine a more bleak picture of a person's life than what Naomi, who you remember her name means pleasant, was having to experience? Look as the text continues in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She says, Listen, you don't owe me anything. I appreciate how you treated my sons. Verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope. If I should say, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You hear those words? It grieves me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So we find a woman who is left helpless, and we also find a woman who feels hopeless, don't we? You can hear it in her voice as she talks to her daughters in law and she says, listen, I'm going back to my homeland. I'm going back to Bethlehem, but there's no reason for you to go, for I have absolutely nothing to offer you. Even if I were to find another husband and I were to have other children for you to marry, my goodness, how long is that going to take? She is helpless and she is hopeless. And she looks at her life and she believes that God, for some reason, is punishing her. You see how the daughters-in-law respond in verse 14. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture there where Ruth, who remember, was a Moabitess. And by the way, there's certainly questions regarding the text because you know that the Moabites were enemies of the Israelites, and God had very harsh things to say about the Moabites in the Old Testament. So immediately there begins to to bring questions in our minds. In the famine, did Elimelech and Naomi make the right decision to move to Moab? And what about the boys marrying about Moabite women? Was that the right decision or was that wrong decision based on the text? And, you know, there are lots of questions surrounding that, right? But part of the book of Ruth not only is about the sovereignty of God, but also God's grace and salvation for all men, as we see here with Ruth, the Moabitess, who is saying to her mother in law, Naomi, No, ma'am, there's no way I'm going to leave you. I'm with you forever. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Now, remember or understand exactly what she's saying, because she's saying, listen, I'm, I'm willing to leave my homeland to be with you. And by the way, when she says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried, she's making a commitment that she's never coming back. She is going to be with Naomi forever. She's going to be with Naomi's people She's going to worship Naomi's God. Ruth is all in as she stays with Naomi. But look at Naomi's response in verse 18. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. You know what stands out in verse 18? What stands out in verse 18 is what's not in verse 18. What stands out in verse 18 is that Naomi doesn't say a word. She doesn't say thank you. She doesn't say, oh my goodness, Ruth, how wonderful you are. You see, Naomi is so helpless and she's so hopeless that when Ruth pledges her loyalty to her in a difficult time, Naomi just turns around and shuts her off and essentially kind of leads us to believe she's given a, a whatever. Startling, isn't it? Let's continue. Verse 19, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You know the name Naomi, as we said, means pleasant. The name Mara means bitter. Look at what she says in verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So in chapter one, we see a woman who is helpless. We see a woman who is hopeless And we see a woman who is hallelujah-less, right? Here's a woman who can't worship the Lord. Life has been so hard for her, and honestly, through the text, she's blaming God for what's happened in her life. She says, listen, you call me pleasant, but you should call me bitter. Because God obviously doesn't see me as pleasant. God obviously, when He looks at me, He sees bitterness. When He looks at me, He sees sin. He sees wrong. He sees something in me that He doesn't like. And as a result, here's the state of my life. Change my name. She is helpless. She is hopeless. And she is hallelujah-less. So... I said we were going to find three lessons or learn three lessons from the book of Ruth about pastoral ministry. Let's get to that. Here's lesson number one. Real life is very hard. Listen, you've got to understand that, okay? One of the mistakes that pastors make is that we don't really get to know the people the Lord has given us to serve. I said to you at the beginning, the reason that ministry is hard is because the the call to pastor a local church is a call to minister to an assembly of people, not to manage an organization. And by the way, one of the greatest temptations that you'll face as a pastor is to spend the majority of of your time managing an organization instead of pastoring the people. Dr. Allen, you know, he said he was at First Baptist Jackson as an interim, and the Lord used him, and I so appreciate his friendship, and so appreciate his ministry at First Jackson. And last night we were having dinner, and he asked me the question. He says, what's your, what's your biggest challenge? And my answer was distractions. And he said, I get it. And began to explain that most of the distractions that I deal with on a daily basis in pastoral ministry, and by the way, that's not unique to First Jackson. That's in every church where the Lord may send you to serve. Some of the greatest distractions have to do with managing the organization. Because there's so much of your time has to be put into that because it is a part of the deal, but the primary calling that God has placed on our lives is to minister to people. And so it's imperative that we get to know people. You may actually wonder, in my case, at First Baptist Jackson, why don't you just hire somebody to do managing the organization? Well, I'll tell you why. One of the reasons is that, well, by being a part of the management of things, it gives me the opportunity to get to know some of the people. And it gives me the opportunity to kind of see how God really is working in the lives of folks, particularly those who are in leadership but real life is hard. And listen, guys, when we don't spend time getting to know the people that God has called us to serve, then sometimes as we stand in the pulpit and preach, we're just out of touch. Listen to me. Some people say that God's Word is irrelevant. I'm here to tell you, God's Word is not irrelevant. God's Word is very revel- relevant. However, sometimes our preaching can be irrelevant. And our preaching can be irrelevant when we don't understand the people in the pews. I learned this lesson personally. Uh, in My first pastorate was at First Babies Church, Biloxi, Mississippi on the Gulf Coast. I never intended to be a pastor, never. My dad was a pastor, my uncle was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor. Last thing in the world I wanted to do was to be a pastor. And I ran my entire life from that calling. But at 29 years old, God called me to be pastor at First Baptist Biloxi. And when I was 33 years old, I was the pastor at First Baptist Biloxi when our community was hit by Hurricane Katrina. And so, as a pastor, there were people in our church who lost everything. There was a wonderful lady in our church who I loved dearly who lost her life. Hi. I don't want to give you inaccurate numbers, but it seems that I remember, I believe, that there were like 90-something families, not individuals, but families in the church who had lost most everything, if not everything, in the storm. There were people who had to ride out the storms on top of their rooftops because the water had completely filled up their homes. And so... As a pastor of a church, 33 years old, now I'm having to meet with people whose life is harder than anybody ever imagined. What do you say to somebody who's been through something like that? You also got to realize that when you stand up and you preach the glorious truths of God's Word about marriage... That there are people in the pews who are, well, their husbands are cheating on them. Or their wives have decided that they were going to leave them. And when you stand in the pulpit and you preach the glorious truths about parenting, on a wonderful day like Father's Day, there's a teenager there whose father is incarcerated. Or when you talk about, again, the the blessedness of parenting, there are parents in the room who have lost their children at an early age. They're hurting. You should continue to preach all of God's Word, right? You continue to preach about God's standard of marriage and the holiness of marriage and the evangelism of marriage. And you continue to preach about parenting and Christian family and all of those wonderful things. You continue to preach the whole counsel of God, but at the same time, you have to realize that there are people who are sitting there in the pews who are hurting in ways that are hard to imagine and honestly hard to wrap your minds around. And you know what? I'm just going to be honest with you. There are some people who are sitting in your pews who are thinking this thought. God must hate me. There are some people who are sitting in your pews on Sunday mornings who they just can't stand to hear what you're you're saying. And as everybody stands and sings, it's hard for them to sing because life has been so hard. They're hopeless, they're helpless, they're hopeless, and they're hallelujah God has called you to minister to people who are just like Naomi. You are speaking the pleasant things of the Christian life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And they're listening to what you have to say. And it's just the most foreign thing thing they've ever heard before because of what they're experiencing in their lives. Life is hard, and in pastoral ministry, you need to know that. Here's the second thing we can learn about pastoral ministry from the book of Ruth, and that is that people who were struggling have a hard time seeing where God's at work. But that's the beauty of the Scripture, isn't it? The beauty of the Scripture is that we have the opportunity to look outside in into how God has been at work in the lives of other people. Isn't it much easier to see reality when you're looking at other people than it is when it, you're looking at yourself? Uh, we have a saying that we say at First Baptist Jackson with our staff sometimes as we're talking about trying to think more outwardly than inwardly. Painters don't smell paint. Ever heard that? That means that we can just be around things so much and so familiar with things that we don't even, we don't realize the truth. And so, oh my goodness, that's true in our lives with God. It's clear to you and me, isn't it, when we look at Ruth chapter 1, that as Naomi is thinking to herself, God must hate me, God has left me, God looks at me and He only thinks bitter thoughts. It's clear to you and me that's not the case. And why do we know that? Because there's Ruth, right? Right? Her name, as you know, means companion or friend. And boy, God has put Ruth in her life at just the right moment with just the right message. But Naomi can't see it. Your responsibility in ministry is to help people to see where God is at work in their lives. Because sometimes the people in your pew, they can't see it. They hear your theology. They hear the sermon. They write down the points that you present in the message. But they don't see it for themselves. That's part of our responsibility. Remember, Jesus taught us, God is always at work and and I am working. God is always at work around us. We need to help people see how God's at work. And then I want to point out to you something about Naomi here in chapter one. Life is incredibly hard. She is helpless, hopeless, and hallelujahless. But we see that she makes one decision in chapter one that will forever change the trajectory of her life. What was that decision? She made a decision to return to Bethlehem. Why was that such a big deal? Because in Bethlehem, as you know, she finds that there is a kinsman redeemer, right? You look at chapter 2. In Ruth chapter 2, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields and she just happens, one would think, we know it's the sovereignty, the providence of God, but she comes to the field of a man named Boaz, who is actually a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz, he not only sees Ruth, but he helps Ruth and Naomi, doesn't he? In fact, he not only allows her to glean, but he makes sure that the guy's Throw a little bit more in. In fact, some of the best barley for her to take back to Naomi. And look at the words of Naomi as we find in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 19. Actually, first of all, the words of Ruth, her mother in law, I'm sorry, her mother in law said to her, Where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. And here's the words of Ruth. So she told her mother in law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now look at what Naomi says in verse 20. Naomi said to her, Daughter in law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. So when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, she finds a kinsman redeemer who provides her help. Also, in chapter 3, look at verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? And you know in chapter 3, she tells Ruth that she needs to go to Boaz and she needs to place herself in a position of uh, of asking for marriage of Boaz and uh, present that to him to actually redeem her. And so we see in chapter 3 that now Naomi, because she has returned to Bethlehem, whereas before she was hopeless, now she has hope, doesn't she? Now she sees that maybe God hasn't left her alone. Maybe God can use her. Maybe God is going to do something great in her life. And then, as you know, in chapter 4, Boaz does redeem Ruth. And we see in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has born him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and he became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we see when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, she finds the kinsman redeemer who provides help. She finds the kinsman redeemer who provides hope. And now she finds through the kinsman redeemer that she has her hallelujah back, doesn't she? And so what does that have to do with us in pastoral ministry? We learn from Ruth that life is hard, that people in the pews are struggling. We need to know them. We need to know what's happening in their lives. We need to know where God's at work. We learn from the text that we need to help people see where God is at work because oftentimes people aren't able to see where God is working in their lives in the midst of the struggle. Sometimes painters can't smell paint. But third of all, we learn that our responsibility as pastors, the very best thing we can do for our people is to point them to the kinsman redeemer born in Bethlehem. The gospel is what our people need more than anything else. And you and I as ministers of the gospel are to continually point people to the the truths that help is found and hope is found and hallelujah is found in Jesus Christ. The Son of God, who came to the earth to take away the sins of the world, who died on the cross, who was buried in the tomb, who rose again on the third day, who sent the Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can have life and that we can have it more abundantly. And so, listen, I get it, right? I get it. Pastoral ministry, it's tough. It's tough. What God has called you to do is the most challenging and honestly frustrating thing you possibly could have agreed to do. But at the same time, it is the most rewarding, the most faith-growing, and the most Exhilarating thing in the world to do because you have the opportunity to join with God and how He meets people in real hard life and opens their eyes. It's not you, though, it's the Spirit working in you, but opens their eyes to how God hasn't left them alone, how God Hasn't forsaken them. How God isn't bitter towards them. But how God loves them. And the greatest evidence of God's love for them and for you and me. Is the gift he gave us in Bethlehem. The gospel is the good news that there is help. And there is hope. And there is reason for hallelujahs. Praise God for allowing us to help people see that. The greatest calling in all the world. Congratulations. Pray with me. Father, we bow before You here this morning, and I praise You for Your goodness and Your grace to all of us. Sometimes we forget that life is hard. Sometimes we forget that You have called us not to manage an organization, but to minister to people. Sometimes sometimes we get too caught up on our own agendas. Sometimes we get too caught up on goals and we forget that your people are the goal. But thank you for your perfect word. Thank you for how you train us for pastoral ministry by the scriptures that you have given us, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we were able to see that through this president this morning who was sharing how you have spoken to him through his quiet time and how it is helping him lead this great seminary. What a great example for us to follow. So, Lord, help us to be a people who are faithful to come to your word, to know truth to help us to see not only who you are and help us to see not only who we are, but help us to see who the people you have called us to serve are. And Father, help us to be a people who point others to Jesus, our source of help, hope, and hallelujah. Bless these women and may the ministries that you give to them in the midst of the difficult days, in the midst of the frustrations, may they feel the exhilarating joy of seeing what you can do through them. In your name we pray. Amen.